Well, there was a little boy who was standing in the foyer of his church, and he was staring up at a bronze plaque that was there that had a number of names, and it had American flags on either side. And the pastor watched this little boy for quite some time, and so he finally comes over and he says, son, do you know what this this is? And he says he doesn't. He said, well, these are the names of people in our church that died in the service. And the little boy with... Wide eyes and a shaking voice turns to the pastor and he said, which one, the 9.15 or the 11 (laughs) o'clock? Now, as we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 20, we're going to see where there is a young man who died in a church service, as well as many other things. And as we're picking up in this uh, series that we've been going through in the book of Acts, you'll recall that last time in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul was there in Ephesus, a city that he had ministered in for almost three years. And uh, we read in Acts 19.21 where it said, Now after these things were finished, uh, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Uh, Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. Paul, as we've seen, has been traveling around. He's there in the city of Ephesus, and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. His goal is to get there by the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, you'll recall, means 50. We saw in Acts chapter 2 how it was 49 uh, days and a day after, which placed it on a Sunday, and he wanted to be there in Jerusalem to minister. But rather than going directly from Ephesus down to Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to go in a roundabout way, and I'm going to go up through Macedonia. And then he says, I'm going to go down into this area of Acacia, where you see the city of Corinth is. And as Paul is traveling around, um, he, he's, Luke is going to start speeding up this narrative. We've seen him telling us what is happening in various places, but from Acts chapter 20 through the end of the book, Luke, you're going to see, begins to just summarize whole chunks of time without really telling us what is going on, because it's this divine draw to Jerusalem that now becomes uh, the focus of the narrative. So what we read in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20 is, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, where he had, after, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts and he had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, notice we're told much exhortation took place, and yet we're not told anything that Paul taught. All we're told is that there was a ministry of about three months that was taking place. And we can fill in some of what is happening from other books of the Bible. As you read 2 Corinthians 2.12, it tells us Paul was there doing evangelism. And 2 Corinthians 2.13 says there was opposition. Paul says, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. And then 2 Corinthians 7.5 says, For even uh, when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. And so Paul is ministering. He's evangelizing, encouraging the saints there. And the scriptures tell us that he was also being uh, very prolific in the writing. God was directing him to record the books we have in the New Testament. The book of 2 Corinthians was written from Macedonia. And there in Corinth in Acacia is where we get the letter to the Romans that is written. And so Paul is there. He's, he's in that area. But his goal, you'll recall, was he said he wanted to go to Troas. He wanted to set sail and go over. 
But God revealed to him that there was another plot against his life. Remember, there was opposition, and they say, they're going to kill you, Paul. And God revealed to him that when he got on the boat and sailed with the group you see in verses 4 through 6, that he would probably be killed on board and maybe his body thrown overboard. Because what happens is Paul sends that group on by ship, but he says, I'm going to travel up the land route by myself up through the Macedonian area. Now, we're told in verse 6 that everybody uh, comes together there in Troas where it says they spent seven days. Now, verse 7 picks up the story telling us, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, in this verse, we get a glimpse of what worship services in the first century church looked like. We see a number of things that they were doing in the early church that we do in our church. It says that they were breaking bread. That's code for taking communion. At the end of our service last Sunday, uh, we came together at the Lord's table. We celebrated communion. We broke bread together. Uh, We read here as well that they met on Sunday just as we're doing now. That's what the first day of the week is. Uh, The first day of the week became known as the Lord's Day. You see that in Revelation 110 where it's referred to as the Lord's Day. And it was called the Lord's Day because this was the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You'll recall it was that early Sunday morning that he came out of the tomb alive. And so the church celebrated uh, the new gathering together and worshiping on the day that the Lord was resurrected. It was also the day the church was birthed. You'll recall in Acts chapter 2 when we looked at what the day of Pentecost was, we saw that that was when the Holy Spirit fell upon the gathered church and it marked the birth of this new entity called the church. Now, they were in a predominantly Jewish culture, and uh, the Sabbath was celebrated on a Saturday. And you'll recall that uh, the Scriptures tell us to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy is one of the commandments. And sometimes people say that we as New Testament Christians are violating the Ten Commandments because we're not meeting on Saturday. All throughout the Scriptures, God is clear that uh, the, the day of the week is not the, the importance, it's the remembrance and the, the setting apart. Remember, there was a time where Jesus was walking with his disciples throughout the field, and as they were rubbing grain in their hand just to have something to eat, the religious leaders confronted Christ. And they said, why are you guys violating the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, uh, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It is not the day of the week that is important. It's that we remember to worship um, Many of you have been in jobs where maybe you had to work on a Sunday and you can worship and have a Sabbath on another day. And so we see, though, the church is gathered on a Sunday for worship. Now, because the Jewish culture said Saturday was a day of rest, what that meant is most of the believers were off on Saturday from their their day-to-day jobs. And Sunday came and they had to get up and they had to go to their jobs and they had to work in the fields and those who were servants. And that's why we see the churches meeting in the evening because they wouldn't be available at this time. They'd be at work. So these are folks that have been up all day working hard. They've been in the field in the heat of the day, and uh, they're tired physically, and yet they gather together. And as the sermon is going, uh, we see that there is a, a time of teaching, just as we're doing now. The scriptures are read. Paul is expounding and explaining what the word of God means. And as he's teaching, if you've ever sat in a church service and thought, gosh, this message seems to go a little long, uh, look at what verse 7 says. Paul prolonged his message until midnight. 
Verses 8 through 12 tell us there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And there was a young man named Jutiacus sitting in the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And Paul kept on talking. As Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and he fell from the third floor and he was picked up dead. This guy's in this packed room. He's at a window, maybe getting a little bit of a breeze. He's nodding off. He falls out of a third story window, falls to the ground, and he's dead. Remember the guy writing the book of Acts is Luke, a physician. He loves the medical details. This guy wasn't just knocked out. He's dead, dead. And so it says, now Paul went down and he fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, he talked then a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were were greatly comforted. So God uses Paul to do this great miracle. This boy is brought back to life. And you would think Paul would say, well, I've kind of got the message. It's already past midnight. I'm done with my message. But it says Paul starts preaching again until daybreak. He goes on. And don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you all. Uh, some, some of you are sitting here going, oh, you know. I know what it's like to look out and see some of you sleeping uh, when I preach. <laughs> And I think, remember, Luke isn't telling us all the details. I think Luke slips this in here to to encourage preachers. Because he he says, if the Apostle Paul can put somebody to sleep, you guys are in good company. (laughs) Now, something else I've seen beyond people just sleeping through a sermon is I've witnessed what happens here, where people stay up all night to hear the Word of God taught. I've had the privilege of going overseas many times and teaching And uh, as you go overseas, what you find is when the church gathers, people are not watching the clock. Many of them have traveled a long distance. They will stay through the entire morning, through a lunchtime, into the afternoon, and sometimes even into the evening. I've seen this in Russia and Romania. I've seen it in China. I've seen it in uh, the, the Ukraine. I've seen it in Africa. People come together and they want to hear the word. And when I've, I've taught in seminaries, many of the students and pastors gathered, the, the time for break will come and they'll go, no, 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 let's just keep going. We don't want to stop. And you get to lunch and they gather around, they want to keep talking. You're trying to eat and talk. Your translators are going, look, we've got to eat. And then you go into the evening and you think when you finally get to go to your room late at night uh, that it's over, that you're going to be able to rest. But what I've learned is when you go to your room, you better not get undressed and ready for bed because there's going to be a, a little knock at the door. And when somebody knocks at the door, you open it, and there's usually a student or two that's been sent to your room, and they'll go, Dobre din, yahachu uh, che, good evening, would you like some tea? Now, I learned a long time ago that the answer is not no. If you say, no, I, I think I'm going to sleep, they go, no, no, no professor, you must come. You must come. And the reason for that is you go and there's, you'll you'll find a scene like this. The the students have gathered. They've set out, you know, quite a little spread because you're going to be there for hours. You notice looking out the window, it's the dead of night. And so what they do is they say uh, question after question after question, and they don't care how late it is. And as you're talking, your, your voice is already shot from teaching all day, and your translators often go, I'm going to bed, and then the other students who can speak some English will jump in. And there, there comes a point where you go, Yahat uh, spot, I need to sleep. And they'll go, oh, Pajos, just one more question, which means a couple more hours. And finally, you just have to go, Dobre noche, good night, I'm going to bed. Oh, okay. And then the next night, there's a, 
Yahachuche? No, not really, but <laughs> you, you know that they are hungry. They're hungry to hear the word. And, you know, as I look at that picture and I think of those students that are, are there, uh, maybe you've heard that uh, as of July 20th in Russia, the, the law has been changed to go back to the, the Soviet times where it's now illegal to meet again outside of a registered church. Uh, missionaries are being expelled. The church is being persecuted. You cannot even teach the Bible in a home Bible study in your own residence now without fear of arrest. And it's why last summer when I was on my sabbatical and they said, would you come one more time because we're afraid the country will close, that I said yes. And as you think about us sitting here in America with this freedom to worship, many of us have Bibles piled up on our shelves at home that we haven't opened in a while. And all around the world, there there are whole churches that share one Bible or portions of Scripture. You think about the resources we have from the the commentaries and the online things and the podcasts and everything that we have access to, just coming on a Sunday like this and being able to to hear and be taught the Word of God. If you've been in a good Bible teaching church like Wayside for a number of years, you've had more theological teaching than most pastors around the world have ever had. And I want you to ask yourself for a moment, are you hungry? Are you hungry to hear the Word of God? Or, or do we look at our clock and go, you know, he's going a little long this morning. Doesn't, doesn't he know, you know, that I've got to get, get to this next event? Or if, if you're somebody that's, that doesn't have this hunger for God's word and recognizing the privilege that we have, then ask God to give that to you. Ask God to just remind you that this is a privilege of sitting at the feet of the Lord and hearing God have a conversation with us as we get to read the very words that he revealed to us. Now, we see that as Paul uh, is there, he's in Troas, but Paul is going to once again separate from his group because it tells us that they go from Troas, which is just above the arrow, to Assos, this next city that is down there. Now, Paul uh, has this ticket that is going to get him all the way home to Jerusalem, but what he does is he says to them, y'all get on the boat and go around. It's actually a shorter trip by land at this point, and so that allows Paul to linger a little longer, to teach the people a little more as he says goodbye. The scripture then goes on to tell us that the, the group makes a stop in three different ports along the way, Uh, in verse 14. And then when we get to verse 16, there's an interesting statement because it tells us that they skip stopping in the port of Ephesus and instead they go on to Miletus. So instead of going to that uh, area where Ephesus is, Paul bypasses that port and goes on to Miletus. Now you remember that Ephesus was a very significant city. Uh, Pastor John Gordon, when he talked about it, Uh, shared with you uh, the scope and size of the city and the importance. And Paul had been a pastor there for three years, his his longest pastorate in any place. And so it's not that Paul comes to Ephesus and says, I don't like these people or it's not worth my time. What he says is, if I stop in Ephesus, I'm never going to get out of there. Remember, he's trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so what he says is, I have so many friends there that I know uh, it will will be impossible to, to make a quick stop. So he bypasses the city, he goes 30 miles to the south, and he sends word back to the uh, church in Ephesus to send the leaders, the elders, to come down and meet with Paul. And as Paul meets with these church leaders, he's going to give his farewell sermon to them. He's going to commission them, charge them, and this is what he says beginning in verses 18 through 21. 
You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials which came upon me uh, through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying both to the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is Paul isn't like the politicians of our day that are going to say what people want to hear. Rather, he says, I shared the truth, even when it was hard, even when it wouldn't be popular. He says, I didn't give you all cotton candy sermons. I gave you the meat of the word, and I told you what God's word said and what he wanted us to do. In verses uh, 33 through 35, Paul will tell them, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men which, who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard and, and in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, Paul says, my, my motives for ministry were not selfish but spiritual. He says, I didn't seek to make a lot of money. I didn't want to become famous. I didn't want to live a life of leisure. Instead, he said, I went about God's work with humility and even tears. Paul says it was hard. There were times that it, was, it, it brought me to tears. Even now, as he's talking to them, he, he says there are difficult things that are ahead, but rather than quitting, uh, he tells them he's going on to Jerusalem. Look at verses 22 through 24. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the, through the Holy Spirit he has solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that, that bonds and affliction await me. There's going to be imprisonment. There's going to be suffering. He says, but I do not consider my life of any account or dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. As Paul shares these words, he packs these verses full of several word pictures that I want us just to linger over for a moment and use it to assess our own lives and to ask ourselves uh, if we're living the way Paul did. The first one that Paul uses, he compares himself to an accountant. He, he speaks of his decision where he says, I, I weighed what the world offered and I weighed the way that God called me to live. And he says, as I looked at the ledger of my life, I chose to set aside the things of the world, money and fame and, and, and leisure. Remember what we just saw in 33 through 35? And he said, instead, I, I invested in the things of eternal value, the lives of people, and the teaching of God's word. In heaven, there are only two things that will last for all eternity, the souls of men and women and the word of God. And he says, I invested in the things that had eternal value. The next image he uses is similar as he says, I was a steward. He says, I received from the Lord Jesus Christ my ministry. A steward or a manager was a, a person who had been given uh, care and control of the master's resources. And, and the manager understood that this isn't for me and my pleasures. This is entrusted to me to do the business of my master. And so he says, I've been given this entrustment of the ministry. And, I, and I'm living my life as a steward for God. As we think of our own lives, do we recognize that we've received a stewardship? 
That everything we have from, from the, the time we have, every breath we have is a gift from God. Every moment of life we have is from God. The talents or abilities we have, those are God-given. Yes, we can work on and hone them and sharpen them, but those are ultimately from God. And then the, the treasures, the earthly resources we have, those are all stewardships from God. And as men and women, do we look at what we've been given, our time, our talents, and our treasures, and recognize these are God's stewardship. These are his entrustment to me to be used for his glory. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, we're told, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Another picture Paul uses in verse 24 is that of a runner. He says that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. You know, if you've read through the book of Philippians, another letter Paul wrote uh, during this time of ministry, he, he used both of those pictures of an accountant and of a runner there. You'll recall that, that Paul was talking to people about his life work as this, this religious leader and all that he did, and, and he, he spoke of it in accounting terms. And he said, I've, I've added up everything, the ledger of my life. And, and I've said, if I were to present my life to God, to come to him with my hands out like this, with, with all that I am, is, and, and said, God, this is why you should let me into heaven. This is how good I've been. Uh, he, he said, I, I looked at my life and what my life produced. And you remember, he used a very graphic picture. Uh, the King James translates it as dung. Uh, we see rubbish in many translations, but Paul used this uh, very vivid word that was a slang word for human excrement. And what he said is, as I looked at what my body produces, I recognized my life works uh, amounted to, uh, to that. And he said, imagine yourself coming to God at the gate of heaven and saying, God, this is why you should let me in. This is what I did with my life. And we go, Roger, that is, that is gross, and that's horrible, and it is. But see, Paul was pulling no punches. He said uh, there in his resume, he said, if anybody had a hope of getting in by being as good or righteous, it was me. And yet Paul's the guy that later says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to the Lord Jesus, because he recognized that's how we're saved, not by our good works, but by the work Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. And right after his resume, this accounting picture, he then uses that, that picture of a runner. Because he says in Philippians three twelve through 14, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul gives this picture of a runner. The Olympics are about to start, and you're going to see these men and women as they, as they reach toward that finish line. They're, they're leaning in with all that they have. They're literally throwing themselves over the finish line. And this is the picture Paul has. He says, I was this runner, and my, my goal was to cross the line, reaching for what God has, has got for me, this, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I've won many spiritual battles. I'm ahead of those that he's writing to. And yet he says, there's still hills to take. And he's exhorting them and us today saying, brothers and sisters, if you've kind of plateaued, 
and you feel comfortable with where you are as a Christian, he says, get up and grow. He says, the goal is to look like Christ. And he says, none of us have arrived at that yet. Now, what sometimes keeps us from moving forward, what hinders us are the mistakes we've made in the past. Paul says here he forgot what was in his past. He was reaching forward to the goal ahead. Now, Paul isn't saying just ignore your past, act as if it never happened. As we read the next chapters in the book of Acts, as we come to those, you know what you're going to see Paul doing? He's going to be talking about his past. He's going, to, he's going to review how before he became a believer, he was a persecutor of the church. Before he came to faith in Christ, he's going to talk about how he denied Jesus and opposed him. But then he looks back at that Damascus Road experience as he was coming in to, to arrest and kill Christians. And he says, Jesus Christ intervened and he appeared to me and he reached down and he snatched me up and he, and he brought me to faith in him. And this is the picture Paul uses. He, he has this picture of how God grabbed a hold of him. And what he says is, I've forgotten the past. What he's saying is, listen, if God has forgiven me of my past, I'm, I've learned I can forgive myself. And, and what he does is, he says, there are scars from the past. There are things I did, but that's not what's going to be uh, what defines me. It's not going to be a prison. When he says, I've forgotten the past, it, it means letting go of the past that controls you. It's, it's a multifaceted word. One of the, the meanings of the word is, um, is to let something die. It, it, it speaks of neglecting something like a plant. You know, if you go out in your yard, if it's like mine, you know, the grass is kind of crunchy in places. Uh, there are plants that, that look like they've seen better days. Some have gone on to the great beyond if I haven't been watering them, right? And if you neglect something, what happens to it? It wilts. It withers. And ultimately, it can die. And you see what happens with some of us is we look at one of the things in our past, some mistake we've made, some pain, some hurt we have. And it's like this boat anchor that's holding us back or dragging us under and drowning us because rather than neglecting it and letting it go from benevolent neglect, we fertilize it and we water it and we focus on it. You know, the Bible tells us not to let a root of bitterness grow within us. And sometimes we hold on to a hurt we've, we've experienced or we hold on to some mistake of our past and that's what we're watering and fertilizing. Paul says, no, 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 neglect it. Let it die. Let it go. Now, Paul says, I've let go of the mistakes of the past and I focus instead on the, the future. This word I told you has a multifaceted meaning. Another one was used of an ancient race. And as a runner would run, when, when I was back in high school and into college uh, in the intramurals and things, I would run cross-country and I'd do relays and various things. And if, if any of you have ever had a coach who watches you run a race and they see you looking back to see where the competition is, that'll earn you extra laps, won't it? They're going, don't do that. You're going to slow down. You're going to trip and fall. It's a mistake. So you never look back. You always look ahead. And so the picture was, if you were a runner, and here's this one, as you pass that runner, you don't look back to see, you forget them. They're gone. Your goal now is the next runner to pass, or ultimately the finish line that you're going to press on toward. And that's what God is telling us as believers to do. Not that we ignore our past like it never happened, but we don't become a prisoner to it. And so Paul says, I've, I've forgotten what's behind. And he says, I'm grabbing on to God. 
The, the picture here is of seizing or taking possession of something. The, the Bible tells us in, in uh, John 10, 28 and 29 that God has placed us in the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ and it says Christ has closed his hand around us. And then God the Father has closed his hand around us as well. And he says no one can snatch us out of his hand. And it's this picture, Paul says, I was against Christ. And when he reached down and he saved me on the road to Damascus, he said, I, wa- I want to take possession of that. I want to hold on to. God will never let us go. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you go to shake somebody's hand and they kind of give you one of those little wet, fi- dead fish shakes. You ever gotten that? And you kind of go, <sighs> you know, you just want to let go of that. What Paul says is it's more a picture of one of those gladiator type of you know, grabs. He says, God grabbed on to me. And he says, I'm going to grab on to God. And he says, God's never going to let me go, but I want to take possession of that. I want to, I want to have that picture of, of being, you know, just in, in fellowship and pulled up. And he says, while we're at it, where God's grabbing on to us and we're grabbing on to God, why don't we grab on to others and bring them along with us? Now, the next picture that he has for us in Acts 20, 24 is that of a witness. He says, we're called to testify about the gospel of grace. Uh, We read here, we are to solemnly give witness. Now, some Christians look like they're the cover child of the book of Lamentations. And and we think that being a believer is about having this mm, down, you know, dour look, and that's really holy and spiritual. That's not what he means. When he says that we solemnly give witness, it means that we recognize the weight Remember the word for glory is kavod. It literally means to be heavy. It spoke of a soldier just heavy with weight as he would carry home the loot that was uh, from a victorious battle. And so when he says we solemnly testify, it's that we recognize the worth, the, the weightiness of the gospel, what we've been given. Paul says in 2 Corinthians two fifteen through 16, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul says, recognize what you have, brothers and sisters. You have the words of eternal life. You have the thing that can bring somebody out of death and into life as you share the good news of the gospel. And he says, you're a witness of it. You get to testify what God has done in your life personally. When a witness gets on a stand, he or she speaks of their personal experience. And all of us here as Christians can say how God saved us and changed our life. Now, Paul adds to this picture of being a witness by what he says in verse 25 about preaching. The Greek word he uses there literally means to declare a message as the herald of the king. To declare a message as the herald of the king. Ever seen these old medieval type of movies and you get that town crier who comes into the square, somebody rings a bell or blows a trumpet and they go, hear ye, hear ye. And they roll this scroll out and what do they do? They read the message from the king verbatim. They, they say, thus saith the king, he wants you to hear this. And that's what we do as those who preach, those who share the word of God. We don't get to edit it, change it, water it down. Remember, Paul said, I don't give cotton candy sermons. I say what God says. And what God says is we are are to share what the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, has said. We're to share these words of eternal life. 
Now Paul emphasizes uh, the need to stand firm and present the, this, this picture of truth in his final uh, metaphor, which is that of a watchman, a watchman who's charged with guarding the flock. Look at what he says in verses 25 through 32. He says, and now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching, there's our word, the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Paul says, listen, this is, this is farewell. I'm going to die. I'm not coming back through Macedonia, through Acacia. I'm not going to be back here in Ephesus. This is the last time we're going to see each other here on earth. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole, perp- in, in declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He says, I didn't cherry pick the little parts. I gave you the whole thing. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend to you and to God the word of his grace, which is able to build up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You know, I titled my sermon, When Sleeping in Church is Deadly. And it doesn't just apply to Eutychus who fell out the window and, and died before he was brought back to life, it applies right here because what Paul says is if you as leaders fall asleep, like a shepherd who's guarding the flock at night, if that shepherd falls asleep, guess what happens? The wolves will come in and it's catastrophic for the congregation because they'll pluck off people. There will be death and destruction that happens to the local body that you have been called to be overseers. These are elders You've been called to pastor. You've been called to shepherd. And he says, you as leaders have a responsibility to watch over the flock. Now, as he talks to the leaders, notice they were first told to be on guard for themselves. He says, you know, it's easy to neglect your own spiritual walk with God. I know this as a pastor and focus on everybody else's needs. But he says, if you neglect your own walk with God, then you're going to be weak. And you're not going to be ready. Have you ever flown on a plane and, you know, that little safety briefing that few people listen to? They say if the oxygen mask dropped from the thing, what are you supposed to do if you're traveling with somebody? It says put yours on first. Take care of yourself. Because if you go out, you're no good to the person you're trying to help. And so what Paul says to the leaders and to all of us as individual believers here is you need to be caring for yourself. You need to uh, make sure you're in the word daily. You need to make sure you're in times of prayer. You need to be strong. Because if you are not, then you're going to be of no good to anybody else. Now, in doing so, not only are we going to be stronger, but it's also going to better equip us to deal with the things Paul's talking about here. Like picking out the counterfeit Christians who try to infiltrate the flock. When you know what the word of God says... You know when somebody misquotes it. Have you ever been listening to somebody and you go, that doesn't really sound right. I mean, it sounds like it's in the Bible, maybe from the book of Second Hesitations. But, you know, it doesn't sound like what the Bible really says. Have you ever had that experience? But if you know the word, you're able to say to the person, oh, no, 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 that isn't what it says. You know, one of the favorites is uh, money is the root of all evil, right? 
No, it says the love of money is a root of. And then it talks about how when we chase after those things, it plunges men into ruin and destruction. Yeah, that can destroy you. But it's not saying money is bad. Money's neutral. It's what we do with it. A great example of how we need to know what the word of God is, and by doing so we can combat heresy, is by reading Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is where Jesus Christ himself was tempted by Satan. Remember, Satan's called the father of lies, the Apollyon, the destroyer. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is taken away to be tempted by Satan. And what did Satan do? He says, oh, well, the scripture says this. And Jesus would go, "Um, excuse me, that's not what the scripture says. It says this. And then Satan would quote a verse, and he would quote it, but what he did was he took it out of context. And Jesus would say, well, what it says in its meaning is this. In other words, Jesus, who is God, who is uh, part of the Holy Trinity, where the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture through the the pens of men, uh, he says, I know the word inside and out. And Satan, while you can twist it subtly and you can, you know, get somebody like Adam and Eve in the garden to fall by twisting what I said, it's not going to work with me. And for us, if we know the word, when these counterfeit teachers come in, we can be like the Bereans that Paul commended where it said they searched the Scriptures to check if what Paul was saying was right. Men and women, if I ever share something from this pulpit and I say, thus saith the Lord, and you can show me in the Bible where God said something different, then you're to reject what I said. Check the word of God against whatever you hear pastors teaching. Now, don't be contentious and come and say, I'm going to, you know, battle you every single day, but check to see, are they teaching truth or not? And this this is a, another thing by knowing the word and, and looking at it. Paul warns another way that these wolves are dangerous to the flock is they exploit God's people. They do it sometimes through fleecing a flock financially. You know, last week when we talked about racial reconciliation, I told you that as a former cop, the thing that cops hate most about hypocritical police are those who, who dirty the badge and those who twist and, and propagate injustice. I'll tell you the same thing as a pastor. The thing that that Bible-believing, God-teaching pastors hate most are these false, you know, shysters who try to fleece the flock of God. Remember, one of the things Paul said in verses 33 through 35 is, I wasn't about getting your money. I wasn't about using you for pleasure. I wasn't about all this. There, There are pastors who call themselves that. I use that word loosely because they're not shepherds who exploit the flock of God. And they look at the flock and they say, this is about what can I get from you? Now, the Bible's clear that a minister is to make his or her living from the, the, the teaching. It says you don't muzzle an ox while it's threshing. And, but it also, you look at Paul, remember he said, my example to you was I was willing to work to cover my own needs so that there would be no allegation of misuse. But what he says here is you have people who fleece the flock. You have those who prey on people, not P-R-A-Y, but P-R-E-Y, in order to satisfy their own pleasures. And what Paul says is a true shepherd, a true minister sees the value of people, not in what he can get from them, but in what God did for them. Look at verse 28. He says, shepherd the church of God. Why? He purchased them with his own blood. Paul says these are people who were so valuable that Jesus Christ gave his very life to save them. And that's how you should see people. 
He said in verse 35, it's more blessed to give than receive. Paul was one who not only shared the words of Jesus, he shared the example of Christ. He said, I ministered in humility. In verses 36 through 38, as he brings his message to a close, it says, when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him, they were accompanying him to the ship. Paul's on the dock. He's with these leaders that he loves dearly. He spent three years pastoring this flock. And he kisses these folks goodbye and he says, I'm never going to see you again. And he boards the boat and he heads out. Many of us have heard of Dr. David Livingston. He was a famous missionary to Africa. And when Dr. Livingston died, they took his body back to England where he was from to bury it. But before his body was shipped back to England, uh, this man who loved the people of Africa and who devoted his life there, some of the, the natives in Africa actually cut his heart out of his body and they dug a hole under a big tree in a remote village and they buried uh, David Livingston's heart there in Africa because they said uh, it's only appropriate that this man whose heart was in the land of Africa and his love for the people remains here forever. So his body's in England and his heart is buried in Africa. And as we look at the Apostle Paul, they didn't literally cut his heart out, but what we see here is his heart is in Ephesus. He loved the people all over the world, but this, these people had a special place for Paul. As you think about your own life, where would your heart be buried if it was in the place you loved most or among the people you loved most? Where would it be? So we look at this picture as Paul and these elders are saying goodbye to one another. We see it's difficult to say goodbye to people we love, especially when we know we're never going to see them again in this lifetime. And yet the comfort we have as Christians is that we know when we say goodbye to a loved one or a a friend that we'll never see again on this earth, that if they're a believer, there's a day coming where we have a reunion in heaven and we get to see them again for all eternity, which is another reason that we should be about sharing the good news of the gospel so that we can bring as many friends, family, loved ones, and even perfect strangers along with us home to heaven. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word that points us to the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. That tells us that the church, which is made up of people, have been purchased by your blood. Lord, that is how valuable each and every one who is here today is. You came and you died for us to save us from the penalty of sin and death. Lord, you don't want to see any of us separated from you. You tell us in your word that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to know him. Lord, you've entrusted to us as your people, as stewards, the message of life. And you call on us to go and share that good news with others. And so, Lord, would we be found faithful? Would we be like Paul? Would we be those who are out there? as witnesses and stewards of the mystery of grace, would we share the good news of the gospel with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. Students will soon see at school as that starts up again. And Lord, yes, even strangers we might meet on the street today. Would you use us, Lord, as your hands and feet and your mouthpieces to share this message of grace. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.